Welcome to the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Ellis Stockton Rossini. Join us here every Saturday night at 8 p.m. or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first. When you least expect it, a life-changing event comes along and you wind up doing something you never dreamed of. Take Patricia Huff, for example. She was in banking and then her mom fell. Next thing she knew, her life, her career, her whole purpose changed forever. She tells us how in her book, Guardian Angels, true, amazing, miraculous stories from home care and proof of divine intervention. The situation with my mom woke me up to this whole other side of life where it's important stuff. It's not about somebody's bank loan or credit rating. It's about life and quality of life. And when she fell, so she came to live with with me temporarily. And the doctor said, you know, we're going to order some home care. And I looked at him. I didn't know what it was. But let me tell you, I knew what it wasn't when we got it. It was terrible. There was no accountability. Uh, People just didn't show up. Um, One day I called home from work. I was working at the FDIC at the time in Hartford. And um, I, you know, got her ready in the morning and left her in a wheelchair. She had broken her hip, so she really couldn't move or do anything. And I called home at noon, and it had lightly snowed, and the aide didn't show up. And these are non- non-medical aids, but the roads were not bad or anything. No call, no substitute, nothing from the the girl herself, the lady, or the agency to say, nobody's going to be there to take care of your mom. So I have this little Italian mother sitting in a wheelchair. My mother had a PhD in guilt giving. She was a wonderful lady, but so I call home and I said, you know, how are you doing at lunch? No, 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 I'm okay. I said, so you haven't even gone to the bathroom? And she said, don't worry about me, dear. I'm okay. I'll be all right. I'll hold it till you get here. Oh. <laughs> so, um, I said, this is not how it works. This is not home care. So ultimately, years later, that kind of flashed. Long after my mom had gone, that kind of flashback. I just had a career rethink and restart, and I opened up my own agency. You opened up your own home health care agency. Yeah, from scratch. And I had never been in that business before. I took a whole year. I had quit work and researched and looked at every agency that was out there, a lot of franchises. And I had 13 years at Dun & Bradstreet where I interviewed businesses and learned about, I mean, it was better than a Harvard education. I learned about all kinds of things that, but in order to succeed, you had to have these systems and focus on quality and accountability. I built this other agency and I felt I could build a brand instead of buying a brand. Um, The name Guardian Angels is thousands of years old and um, we cared that was going to be the the difference with my company. So I built the company from scratch and that's what my book is about. The stories of some of these clients, some of these caregivers, the things that went on in the office. It's a whole other world that nobody really talks about when people that whole part of life when people are aging. Well, yeah, well, we're talking more about it now because so many people are aging. So do you share individual stories? Yes, there are many. Um, we had a gentleman in the in a wheelchair. Uh, he had MS. A gentleman brought him in who was kind of a biker dude. It was kind of a, I thought it was an old friend or something. 
Well, it turns out this guy is a former Navy SEAL and wanted to give back. And he was helping him out, but he just couldn't do it anymore. And the gentleman in a wheelchair, I'm going to call him Mickey, he had hired people, you know, independently through state programs and whatnot. And they were abusive and he had been through a lot. So he decided to come to an agency and see if he could get better control of the quality of the aids that he got. So we went to work for him. Um, one day, it was a weekend, and it was Father's Day weekend. Mickey had his, we had a caregiver there full time. She got sick. So we couldn't really, we were trying to find a replacement, couldn't really find one. And Michael, through an email, said to us, don't worry about it, I'll get it covered. Well, he goes to his dad's to visit his father for Father's Day. And he comes in the house and he wheels himself out to the yard. And the aide stops to talk to the father. Well, Mickey, his wheelchair malfunctions, and he falls in the pool. Now, he's strapped, he's strapped in the wheelchair, double strapped, and he's in the deep end. Well, most of my caregivers are, you know, young females. Well, they came to, to look for him, and there he is. And it turns out the caregiver that Mickey was able to round up last minute was the gentleman that we had originally met, who was a former Navy SEAL. So he jumped in, had a knife, cut him free, brought him up, performed CPR, went back in for the wheelchair, and saved his life. Now, if that had been my caregiver that had been on duty that day, that weekend, he would have died for sure. If that's not divine intervention, I don't know what is. So it was just a an amazing event. How to explain it is that you can't explain it. Um, I've seen it too many times. There to me is some sort of a spiritual connection. I'm not saying it all is, but I think if anybody is working with their parents at home or going to work with their parents at home, it's amazing the stories that are in there that can wake you up to some of the things that can happen. What's the most disturbing thing for you? Family dynamics. Um, if you had a social worker or an independent um, person who was an advocate for that uh, elderly couple, elderly person, what would they recommend? I mean, that's where you have to have it come from. You can't have it come from a family member because they'll argue over money that's spent because that's their inheritance, over the house, over the care. Uh, maybe they didn't have the relationship with the parents that the other siblings did. So it's, it's a constant battle. Um, when we go through the different stories, we talk about how different things resolved themselves or didn't resolve themselves. And it might help someone on their path, maybe with either stress, money, uh, understanding the options of, of care, uh, what's available and what isn't, and about understanding caregivers who come into these situations that are basically, we tell our caregivers, um, you're going into a situation with a family in crisis. So you have to do whatever you're doing with compassion and kindness. These caregivers, my agency or not, these people who do this job as a calling because they do want to help people, they are truly guardian angels. They really are. Couldn't agree more, Patricia. Thank you. Justin Boyd was an elementary school teacher before he became a Dallas cop, and that's when his kids encouraged him to finish a book he started years ago. It's entitled A Turkey's Thanksgiving Story. Uh, I wrote the story uh, just to, for my, my class and my kids. That I, I just gave them a writing assignment. And just as an example, I said, I'll sit down and write a story. Well, you all write a story. And uh, and read the, the rough draft to my own kids. 
and they loved it and said, Dad, you should work on this. You should make this a real story. And uh, so I did. Then uh, a few years went by and uh, found it in, in a box when uh, we were cleaning out upstairs. And my youngest daughter told me, Daddy, you should, you should turn this into a real book. And I uh, added, added to it. And then I started doing the illustrations. And, and uh, two and a half years after I started the, the process of actually submitting the book, it turned into a book. It took about two and a half years to get everything done, submitted, drawn up. And, and uh, a turkey goes to a farm. And there's uh, two factions. There's the ducks and the chickens. And he doesn't know where he fits in. And the ducks are showboats and, and layabouts. And they don't do much. And they, 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 they're braggers. They brag about how they can fly and they can swim. And, and they just live all day off the, off the farmer's charity. And his wife, she loves to go feed the ducks. Well, it's an egg farm. So the chickens are the workers. And they don't like the ducks because the chickens work all day laying eggs. And once they stop laying eggs, they become food for the farmer's family. They, they tell the turkey, you know, if one of them could do what the what the ducks could do, it would really show the ducks and really put them in their place and make them stop bragging so much. You know, he, he has much bigger wings and much bigger tail and, and he could he could fly. They can't fly. They've tried, but he could fly. The day comes and they get him up on top of the barn and uh, he runs and jumps off the barn and he falls flat on his face. And then the ducks and chickens all laugh together and they're all, they all come together and they, oh my gosh, this one actually jumped. We actually got one to jump. And uh, then, then they explain to him that uh, it's a joke and that the chickens and ducks, you know, to ease the tension on the farm every year, they always wait for the new turkey to come. And uh, they, they always try to see if they can get him to jump off there. And he was the first one they ever got to jump off. And then they explained to him his job on the farm. He's there for Thanksgiving dinner and he's heartbroken. And, you know, he, he the people he thought were his friends weren't his friends, and turns out they were all playing a joke on him, and everyone was in on it, and everybody knew about it except him. Then a, a little duck and a little chicken, and so they don't agree with what their dads did, and they said that uh, they they could help him to, to make it through Thanksgiving, and they had a plan. They said, well, you can't fly. We figured that out, but maybe you can swim. The duck just explains to him, fat floats. So the fatter you get, the easier it's going to be for you to float the better you'll be able to swim and you know, and your wings are going to be great paddles. So the duck and the chicken work with him at night when no one's around and try to teach him how to float and teach him how to swim. The day of the big Thanksgiving comes and he says, I'm, I'm going to show you all something. I'm going to go down and swim. And the, the rooster and the, the, the lead duck are just beside themselves laughing again, thinking, Oh my gosh, this is the best, best Thanksgiving ever. You know, it's this, this turkey's going to give us two shows this year. Wow. What a great guy. What a good, lo and behold, he, he can swim. And, Farmer comes out and uh, he sees a swimming turkey on Thanksgiving and decides not to eat his swimming turkey. Instead, he calls the media and the news and everybody out there to come come witness this amazing, you know, swimming turkey. So it's about friendship with the uh, the little chicken and the little duck, and it can be about challenging family norms and you know and things that have done in the past. Just because somebody does something doesn't mean you have to keep those traditions going, especially if they hurt other people. If you think that something is not right, you should stand up for what you believe in. And even if it means going against your family or your friends and, you know, and standing up for somebody else. So it's so it's got a lot of morals and lessons in there that you can teach kids. And uh, part of my motivation behind it was just that as an elementary teacher, you're always trying to, you know, teach the kids morals and values, but do it in a way where they don't know you're doing it. And and then, then let them draw on it themselves and then open it up to discussion and have them talk about it. And they're like, oh, I get it. And then they start bringing it up and talking about it. Like, oh, really? What do you think about that? So it's just a good way to, to do that. And um, But there's a lot of humor I wrote into the book. Uh, 
for the adults too. My my kids all all loved it and they couldn't wait for it to come out and they got so excited when it came in the mail and wow, dad, you made a real book. It's like, yeah, it's, it's a real book. Great story, Justin. Thank you. Kareem Rashid asks, how is our ego getting in the way and stopping us from listening and accepting others just as they are? He even thanks his ego for allowing him to come up with the concept for his book entitled Screw Your Perception. All right. Explain. What inspired the whole book is that I find myself in my head with all of these things that I I perceive. And so I decided to look up the definition of perception one day, just out of the blue. And I find out that the definition is what you think about or how you understand someone or something. So I realized that, oh, perception is not reality. It's just my reality. It's not what is actually going on. It's just what I perceive to be going on. And so I decided to write a book about it and, you know, put and shut my ego up. When I write, I'm writing for myself and I'm writing to heal and I'm writing everything that has been spoken to me that is like about myself that needs to come out, you know? So basically I go through the darkness, I write it down and I'm like, okay, now here's the light. It's a tool and a gift that's given for me to actually see myself clearly, whether it's good or bad, but that's another perception. There's not a character, it's just me talking, but I interviewed several people perception of government, perception of education, perception of mental health, all the things that no one wants to talk about. Because it's simply about, let's just come together. Let's stop being so divided in our own mind, because that's all it is, ego that separates us and wants us to be better than, lower than, or something, just just separate. How about we put our perceptions out there and just talk about it? It's okay, you know, and still be able to connect with with someone else, you know, whether they're Republican, Democrat, whatever. I'm learning about myself to learn how to accept other people right where they are. And if they have a different viewpoint, so what? (laughs) It's okay. And, And there does seem to be a lot of division. We do seem to be polarized. And, uh, it is hard for people to accept another person's point of view. And it doesn't quite seem fair. So, I mean, I think you're definitely picking up on something that's pervasive in our society, in our culture right now. Yes, indeed. I mean, for one, the first chapter at this perception, not reality. I was actually sitting in Starbucks. I share a real moment. And there is a guy, the barista, he keeps looking over at me. Now, my perception of this guy, and I just put it out there is that he's a homosexual, I'm not, and he likes me. And he's staring at me as if he wants me. And now, that's just a perception. That doesn't mean that that's so, maybe he's not. So let's lay out the what ifs. What if this is all just in my head? So what if the reality is, is that I may just be in this guy's field of vision? What if this guy is not a homosexual? Why am I even characterizing him and putting him in that category. I talk about different things like that in the book. There's another topic that I bring up about perception of people where I walk into Walmart and I'm like, oh my goodness, she has a shower cap on her head. Like, why is she, she should have stayed at home. But okay, so the other side of that is what if this person really wasn't trying to be out forever and they just put on what was comfortable and they wanted to go into the store real quick and get what they needed and and get out of there. You know, why am I categorizing them as 
uh, a person that comes from the hood, <laughs> you know, because she has a shower cap on her head. So the perceptions that I have, it, it is, is used from an ego perceptual point of view because it starts putting people in categories, which later on does what? It divides me from them and it separates me from them so from a judgmental lens. And that is not how we are supposed to use the gift of perception because it is actually a gift. So I break that down in there too. You know, our five senses are perception. We were given those and we use it in, in the wrong manner or I tend to. So I'm talking about myself throughout the whole book. So you did a little self therapy here. Yes, I did. All right. Nothing wrong with that, Kareem. Thank you. A railroad maintenance engineer, Isaiah Lopez, likes to write after work. And one day he found a dream he wrote down years ago, decided to add to it. And now we have Radioactive Era of Change. It was just uh, me and my friends kind of going back to our high school football field for something. And then just, you know, dreams, a bunch of stuff happened. All had superpowers. and then. I just found myself adding on to that and then really liking that whole process. So main character finds himself in like an underground bunker with powers brought to him by a meteor that showed up and crashed in like the DMV area. And he and like thousands of people in the blast zone got it. And now a sort of contracted third party is kind of taken over the place to try to find a cure but that just doesn't end up working and they try to instead just use them for like a mind control thing. You know, there's not like a outside resource. It's, I guess their own energy stamina. The main character discovers the contracted company is using the people for like a uh, weaponizing them. And so they break free and try to fight back against that. He kind of helps rally his dome which is one of many facilities that have like bunkered down all these people to go through this whole project but he gets his dome out they fight out and then they discover that all these other domes exist and so now they then work together with everybody that was like topside in the ruined quarantine zone to release everybody bring them all together and kind of unite against this force like they they consider themselves human but everybody else are like oh these guys are abominations they're genetically like altered or whatever mutants monsters demons and they must be eradicated yes okay so there is more than one book here yes so where do you leave us at the end of the first book at the end of the first book they take out the leading head of that uh contracted company who was trying to mimic their powers and be able to kind of sell that but he's put it on himself became this whole abomination thing and after he kills him they then try to establish themselves as a nation we've got an action-packed adventure here oh yeah so so when's the second book coming out i do not really know i have like the first draft kind of done but i want to kind of like let it marinate so i can go back to it with fresh eyes and see if anything else needs to be changed up before i really try to publish it okay now you, you talked about one particular main character right yes but are there other characters oh yeah plenty he meets up with a good number of people in the dome itself 
along with reconnecting with friends he had made back in, you know, decades before, before all that happened. And the domes are like these worlds that they live in. Yeah. Like compounds. Like, uh, yeah, underground hidden facilities for all the uh, science and evil plot mastermind stuff. Okay, and that's where they live. Yes. And that's not their choice, right? At first, if they were tricked into wanting to be down there to help find a cure for this, but unbeknownst to them, it was mostly used for weaponizing their abilities. So that's when they decide to break out. All right, Isaiah, looking forward to that next book. Thank you. Tanisha Antoine is a life skills coach who wants to make healthy eating fun for the whole family, starting with the title of her book, Broccoli Schmockley. Now, I bet you have uh, some kids at home that don't like broccoli, right? Yes, um, I have two little ones, um, eight and six. And I can tell you every night it's quite challenging to kind of get them to enjoy their vegetables and uh, without it being overwhelming our teeth. You know, it's always they don't want to eat it. So I try to find creative ways to make healthy dishes fun. Because uh, I'm, a, I'm a writer, and throughout the day, certain things will come to me, and I'll just jot them down. And um, it's funny because in the book, she compares uh, giant trees to broccoli. And, she, you know, she goes on and, and tells her, you know, experiences and, and comparisons of why she doesn't like them, much of a broccoli. So what happens is she, one night she, she goes to bed, and then as she's sleeping, she teleports to different mystical, magical place in her dream. And throughout the journey in her dream, she's kind of like trying to find her way back home, and she runs into odd things. It's like a cave she's going through, kind of trying to find her way back home. She runs into dishes that floats inside the river. She runs into, like, broccoli that look like giant trees and clouds that melt like dripping cheese. And throughout the book, it will give you a recipe for uh, broccoli and cheese at the end of the book. My favorite part, I have to tell you, are the clouds of dripping cheese and garlic. I mean, if you can't eat broccoli with dripping cheese and garlic on it, you're not going to eat it, right? No, absolutely not. <laughs> and you said that a, a canoe becomes a plate. Yes. What happens is mom finds out where disappearing dishes goes. <laughs> and she finds instructions. She meets a broccoli named Buck and Yuck. And they um, kind of like tell her which direction till she finds their exit, which is called Crock-Pot Way. So she goes down Crock-Pot Way and... As she's entering the exit door, the kitchen is being like portaled in towards the end of the book. And at the end, we find that broccoli schmockley is a recipe. Yes. And is it cheese, broccoli, and garlic? Yes, so it's um, it's like a broccoli and cheese. Sliced garlic cloves that look like stones guided her into a beam of ray. So the, I used the garlic as steps to the ray of light. Now, have you tried this recipe on your kids? I definitely have, and they loved it. Um, they've asked, they actually have been asking for me to cook it um, a little more often, and I, I need to definitely do that soon. Have you been able to read your book to other little kids? Yes, I have. Um, I have read it to two of my children's class, uh, one first grade and one second grade. My husband has read it to the third grade class, and I've read it to some of my nieces and nephews. If you have any children or grandchildren, you can definitely um, show some support. I appreciate it. Check it out. 
All right, Tanisha, you got it. Thank you. Finally, DJ Cotton was in a hospital bed on oxygen when I talked with him about his book, The Life and Times of Sergeant Joseph Thomas, Tom Byway, USMC. So be patient as we as we tell his story. Now, um, DJ, you, you say you were inspired a couple of years ago by a Clint Eastwood movie from the 80s, right? Heartbreak Ridge. Heartbreak Ridge. Yes. Okay. And your book is about two characters, Sergeant Joseph Thomas Byway. Yes. And the other other Chicago policeman called Odell Williams. And Odell Williams is a retired Chicago police officer. Yes. Why did Sergeant Thomas join the Marine Corps? He raped his sister. He was 16. And his father had him arrested. And the judge gave him a three-way choice. So after he raped his sister, he had a choice to go to reform school or the Marine Corps. Yeah, he opted for the Marine Corps. And several years later, he met Odell Williams, and they immediately didn't like each other. No, they don't. Now, it turns out these two guys knew each other in Vietnam. And what happened there? Uh, the Marine, Marine, he bludgeoned his uh, Odell Williams with a shovel, and he was court-martialed. Why did he do that? <laughs> yeah, because of the Vietnam, uh, they were captured. He was going to go out and kill them. And he turned the Marine, you know, Odell Williams, he turned the Viet Cong prisoners loose. Williams turned the Viet Cong prisoners loose, and Sergeant Thomas killed him and wound up getting court-martialed for it. Yeah. Okay, so the sergeant winds up going to Leavenworth Prison for 10 years, and when he got out, he went to see his ex-wife and her husband. They divorced him in 58. They were separated because he lost a son. son. Both sons died. One was three years old, and the other was... Two days old. So the point being, because he had no scruples, all these bad things happened to him. Yes. I said, you know, you should have scruples, you know. You don't, you're, you're uh, more than you need to have scruples, you know, to get, get by. And he had none. What a sad story. Yeah. Well, he finally, he finally fell in love with another woman, and she uh, went back to her old boyfriend. And he became upset, and he had a stroke. He eventually ended up in a nursing home. All right, DJ. I, I hope we were able to do justice to your book, and I, I hope you feel better soon, and thanks for being here. We hope you all enjoyed this edition of the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. We hope to see you back here every Saturday night at 8 p.m. or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. 